Well, here we've got Revelation 19 and 20. We're coming now to the final consolation, the, the final wonderful picture of how our destiny will ultimately end in God's eternal kingdom, when finally all the struggle that we have had will finally end. And don't minimize the amount of struggle which there must be and must have been in your life, because nobody gets there, gets there for free, no one gets an easy ticket there. And, of course, the whole of Revelation is talking about the struggle which there is for God's people against various entities which relate to sin, the flesh, and the political manifestation of those uh, of sin and, and, uh, and moral weakness within organizations such as the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, those systems which we've been up against in our lives. <clears throat> and so now it finally comes to an end, and all those systems and sin itself is finally destroyed. And there will, of course, therefore have to be judgment. And in verses 1 and 2, you have this great voice of much people praising God because, verse 2, true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great whore. And everyone is praising God because of that. So, in a sense, the, the harder side of God attracts in a strange way. It's like when Ananias and Sapphira are slain, and we kind of think, well, that was uh, wrong of them to have lied and try to be proud about how generous they were when they weren't really so generous. But all the same, they did sell their property, and they did at least give some of it to the Lord's service, and God, God just smites them down dead. And straight afterwards, we're told that fear fell upon everybody, and a great number of people accepted the Lord. It's as if by seeing the crucial difference between right and left, between light and darkness, between sin and righteousness, we are in fact inspired to choose that right path. So we come on then in verse 7 uh, to see the Lamb, which is of course us. The marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready, and to her was given that she should be arrayed in fine linen, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Now, the righteousness that we have is, of course, not our own. It is of Christ. And so our preparation, our making of ourselves ready, which you meet this idea later on in chapter 21, that the, the, uh, the, the New Jerusalem is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The, the preparation, the making of ourselves ready, is, I think, an ever-deepening faith in the fact that, quite simply, he loves me and he sees me as if I am perfect. And yet, there is another element to this being displayed in our righteousness, which is maybe not only imputed righteousness. You remember in the parable, Jesus says to the righteous, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And although they're not aware of that, they even argue back with him that, no, yeah, that's not me, Lord. This is mistaken identity. You've got it wrong. They're very convinced that, or we will be very convinced, that this is quite inappropriate uh, for, for me. The, the point is that he will, as it were, display all the good things that we have done. And of course we should not uh, be consciously aware of them. They are only righteousness because our left hand did not know what the right hand was doing. So then, this is how we make ourselves ready. It is belief uh, in his imputation of his own righteousness to us. And yet also a response to that by actually doing 
actually doing righteousness by trying to live out in practice who we are seen as being by status. Several times you've got something similar to what you've got in verse 9. These are the true sayings of God. Several times in these last seven final visions of, of glory that you've got from Revelation 19 to the end and 22, you've got these little comments that, um, wow, this is all really true. This is actually true. And it seems axiomatic because it's, it's like obvious, this is God's own word. Of course it's true. And yet, I think that John, even un under inspiration, was kind of struggling for language. And you get the same with John when he talks about the crucifixion. He sort of says, look, I saw this, and uh, what I'm saying is true. And we know that what he says is true, that, that the comment says. And so <clears throat> there is a, a strong feeling that John is trying to express under inspiration, but all the same, as I say, I think uh, groping for the right words, that this is ultimately true. And of course it's that which we need to hear, that this faith in Jesus that we have staked our lives upon, that this is all ultimately true, that this will all ultimately and finally happen. And of course he wants to worship the angel who is telling him this. The angel says, no, no, no don't do that. Uh, I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now what does that mean? The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I understand that to mean that our testimony to Jesus in this world is in the spirit of the Old Testament prophets, that we are not to see them as sort of white-faced old men and stained-glass windows kind of thing, but that we are directly connected with them. And this was perhaps especially hard for Jewish people in the first century to, to make that bridge between me today in my life and my set of situations and the witness that I have to make and those men of the Old Testament, that we are in the same spirit as them. James 5.10 puts it quite bluntly, the prophets are to be taken by us as our examples. And there are several times in the New Testament when the words of the prophets and the spirit of the prophets is applied to us. For example, when Jeremiah starts off his ministry, Jeremiah 1.17, he's told in the RV, Be not dismayed of them, lest I dismay you. And Jesus picks that up in Luke 9.26 when he says, If you are ashamed of me and of my words, my testimony, then I will be ashamed of you. So we are to see the brethren, uh, the prophets, as our brethren. That's how they're described in uh, ch chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 9. All the time, as, as I say in the New Testament, we're seeing this. That the situation the prophets were in, and their spirit, is to be ours. We who are in Christ and testifying to him in this world. Take Isaiah 22:13. And Isaiah was up against the attitude that let us eat and drink for tomorrow we shall die as we are indeed uh, and Paul quotes that in 1 Corinthians 15.32 and says look we who have the hope of resurrection amidst a world that generally does not we are up against the same spirit let us eat and drink for tomorrow we shall die so then the same essential spirit which was in the prophets is to be in us and of course this was so relevant 
to those in the first century who first encountered these words of the revelation though there they were having to pay a huge price for testifying to Jesus and they're being told yes you are to do this in the spirit of the Old Testament prophets and that is you know no less I think our our situation today now it goes on to talk about Jesus personally and I love verse 12 that he has on his head many crowns maybe reflecting the many aspects of struggle that he had we may have a few and in the end we are given a crown and yet we throw that crown uh, on the floor the four and twenty elders do that earlier on in Revelation as if to say I, I'm not worthy of this that is our feeling will be our feeling as we encounter the Lord and yet he quite rightly has many crowns because I think that reflects the different aspects of his human struggle in all sorts of ways maybe with his mother maybe with Joseph with his brothers with Israel with the Pharisees with the disciples with depression with all sorts of things and yet he was crowned well, there's a lot of emphasis here quite rightly on the lordship of Jesus and it comes to a head in verse 16 that he has uh, a name written king of kings and lord of lords but don't forget the first century context in which this was being said that there was a slogan really throughout the Roman Empire Caesar or the state is lord and people had to take that oath that Caesar is Lord and yet as the church spread throughout the Roman Empire in the first century the followers of Jesus had another slogan Jesus is Lord now if I were to say to you you know hands up who believes Jesus is Lord is Jesus just Jesus or is he the Lord Jesus Christ is he King of Kings is he Lord of Lords I guess we'd all put our hand up and say sure and yet in the first century it hurt and it cost to make that confession and men and women died for saying that and yet in a sense it's no less radical for us now because if Jesus really is Lord of your life you are not free I am not free we are not free to do just what we fancy doing today or tomorrow or the next five minutes or the next hour that we are under his Lordship to accept him as Lord is effectively to be obedient to him so it's not quite so simple as singing nice songs and uh, cleverly worded hymns etc that Jesus is Lord this really demands a lot it's quite necessary that we do that <clears throat> that that should be our slogan and what we chant as it were in our own subconscious mind as we go around our lives but the point is that it really is radical that we really are, are him uh, are under his, his domination and his uh, master mastery in this world and we are not under this world and of course we'd say oh no I'm not under the lordship of this world but we can so easily be so particularly with the power of internet culture the power of the media the power of advertising there's so much that is effectively trying to lord it over us and verse 20 here in chapter 19 <clears throat> we have the beast and the false prophet and they are thrown with their worshippers into the lake of fire burning with brimstone but 
destruction by fire is very much the language of the destruction of the unworthy amongst the ecclesia. See chapter 21 verse 8 talks about the fearful and unbelieving, abominable murderers etc. also being thrown into that same lake. When we come to look at Revelation 21, I hope to demonstrate that each of those words in verse 8, fearful, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, whoremongers, liars, all these words are used elsewhere in the New Testament to talk about believers, to talk about people within the ecclesias. So I think the point is that the rejected amongst the responsible or within the household of faith go to their same end uh, go to the same end as the beast and the false prophet and this is what Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians 11 when he talks about the danger of being condemned with the world and yet he says if we would condemn or judge ourselves now we would not be condemned so he's bringing out the greatest paradox perhaps of all time of all cosmos that those of us who feel at the breaking of bread and he's talking there in a breaking of bread context in 1 Corinthians 11 that those who feel that I should not be there that those who judge themselves who condemn themselves are the ones who will not be condemned but those who in this life say no no I'm not worthy of condemnation I'm a good guy I'm not going to face up to my sins it's those who will be condemned and will be condemned with the world and so the breaking of bread is designed, it seems, to bring us to that T intersection, to that awareness that right or left, that, that there's no third way in this life, that our destiny is one or the other. And so those who have loved the system of this world will just go back into the world. Uh, and as simple as that, it could even be that this uh, abyss which is spoken about here in, in Revelation, uh, this abyss of fire, that this is alluding to the uh, idea that the Jews had in the first century that everywhere outside of Israel was the abyss, that this was the Gentile world. As if Jesus and the believers are the accepted are in Jerusalem, uh, the kingdom of God is established, and anyone who is rejected at the day of judgment is just cast out into the world, and there they die, along with the world which they loved. You know, you want to go out with the guys from work rather than with some old, old, old folks from the, uh, from the Ecclesia. Okay, you know, if that's your way, if you want this world, if that is in your heart where you are, then that is where you will end up. And there is a crucial separation that's taught right back in Genesis, the separation of light and darkness, the waters uh, under the firmament and above the firmament, uh, etc., this whole idea of separation, light and darkness, etc., is right there from the very beginning of God's dealings with people. And it's not, I think, a negative thing that, oh dear, I've got to do this, and I mustn't be with them sort of thing. It should be natural. That there should be a natural affinity. If you have a heart for God, uh, you'll have a natural affinity with others who also have a heart for God, and no affinity with those who are not. It's as simple as that. So then, the destruction of the beast by fire in the lake of fire, or the abyss, I think is um, talking about what's going to happen to 
not only the, the world systems at the time of the coming of Jesus, the beast and the false prophet, but also the, the rejected amongst the household. And as I say, um, <clears throat> that in Revelation 21, verse 8, all those people, fearful, unbelieving, etc., uh, some of these people you might know. We, of course, cannot label people, you know, you're one of the abominable uh, who will not be in the kingdom. Of course not. But I'm just saying that that is how it is going to be, that the, the separation of the wheat and tares cannot be done by us, but it will be done when Jesus comes back. And that there is therefore, it's just going to be, that we are therefore going to be living in a situation where there are wheat and tares uh, growing together, apparently, within the Ecclesia. And it's not for us to, to try to judge that, but it is also a fact. Now, the lake of fire burns with brimstone or sulphur, verse 20. And this is very much the uh, language of, of Sodom. You remember how Lot's wife was turned into salt, just like the surrounding country around Sodom was turned into salt. So she also, in that sense, had her punishment with the world. There was the world of Sodom, the unbelieving world, and then there was the household of faith, which was Lot's family, and even amongst them, there was Lot's wife, who looked back, presumably at her new kitchen, and <clears throat> all the rest of it, and her heart was back there with the unbelievers, and all that she left behind, that's where she wanted to be, so zap, she's turned into a pillar of salt, just as the whole of the, the country around Sodom was also effectively turned into, into salt. And of course, remember Lot's wife. This, this is the point. It's not that God's trying to scare us into obedience, but all the same, there is this sense of the future that we might miss. And that has got to be, I think, very clearly um, in our consciousness all the time. Not in a negative sense, but we have to be aware of it. <clears throat> now, going on then in verse 11 of chapter 20. There's a great white throne, and from his face the earth and the, and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I think that's talking about heaven and earth in the sense of a, a world system. They flee away from his face. And John has a similar idea <clears throat> in 1 John 2.24 when he, he says that we should believe in our salvation so that we are not amongst those who slink away from his presence. That's what the, uh, the Greek uh, really seems to mean. But there will be a slinking away from the Lord's presence. That's 1 John 2, 24. No, it's not 1 John 2, 24. Um, <clears throat> it's verse 28. That we may have confidence and not be ashamed from before him at his coming. The idea of being ashamed from before him to slink away to flee from before him that's what's going to happen to all those who don't have confidence and yet he says we can have that confidence if we love our brother if we abide in him so that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not slink away be ashamed from before him at his coming like the world system will do that they will flee away their heaven and earth will flee away from before him from before his presence, from before his face, just as the, uh, the unworthy amongst the household will also do. 
So then we will see his face. And putting together the different pictures of the rejected, some of them, or maybe all of them, argue back. Lord, Lord, when did we see you without uh, anything to drink and we didn't give you something to drink? They're arguing back. And uh, Lord, Lord, didn't we do many wonderful works in your name? The foolish virgins banging on the door. We were waiting for you, Jesus. I don't know who you are. Go away. So first of all, there is this sort of vain attempt to, to sort of persuade him. And then there is this acceptance that they're rejected. And then this slinking away. And in fact, you could even bring a few verses from the Psalms and Prophets to play, which talk about the angel of the Lord chasing them from his presence. Yet the point is, we should be able to have confidence before him right now. And how do we find that confidence? By simply believing that really our sin is covered. That really we are found acceptable by him. That is what it's all about, about the, the wife preparing herself, the, the bride, putting on this wonderful white clothing. And that is where the breaking of bread is so helpful, because we're up against it, aren't we? Do I believe firmly and fervently? that my sin is now no longer a barrier to him, that really he sees me as if I am Jesus. The whole point of why Jesus died is to persuade us that that is really the case.